Hi, and welcome again to Miss Magic Medicine. This season is all about immigrant doctors coming to the U.S. And my guest today is Swapna. Yep. Swapna is all the way from Mumbai and found herself unexpectedly in the U.S. So... <laughs> Swapna, please tell us about yes. yourself. Oh, no, absolutely. Thank you, first of all, for the opportunity, Denise. I mean, uh, for me, this is really a great platform to talk about my experience, both as a doctor and as a person, human being. Mm -hmm. um, because coming from another country and trained in medicine in another country and then redoing everything, especially reworking all the cultural aspects, that's a humongous game. But I am so blessed today after practicing 20, 25 years of psychiatry here, and a couple of years in India, maybe one, one, one and a half year. But and uh, actually, if I could just interrupt the flow yes. for a moment, yeah. psychiatry must have been one of the more difficult ones because culture is everything. <laughs> it is. I'm so. I go back. Go back to your flow. I'm sorry. I didn't. No, no. So, so but you're so right because that that's what I was going to actually sort of focus on the difference of how it was for me to practice psychiatry back then. Mind you, I'm talking about the 90s. I'm dating myself mm -hmm. here. But still, um, when when I started psychiatry, I mean, there was a lot of objection, not even, um, you know, a lot of surprise from my uh, co-medical uh, students, but also my dad, who is a general practitioner, was hoping that I would do some traditional pathways, OBGYN or pediatrician, because there was something that entailed medicine there. Psychiatry was such a uh, taboo subject or uh, came up with so much stigma that they weren't even sure how I would practice in India, what I would really do, as if there was no depression, psychosis, mania, none of that existed in that very uber Indian culture, wherein you never talked about such things, even as a doctor, even as a physician. So this for me was my impetus, because I'm always challenging myself. And I wanted to throw myself in a field where really there was no help. And I really felt that um, um, when I have practiced there and here, I feel like there's such a vast difference. One of the things that, you know, was very interesting for me was that we used to get from a lot of religious places because in India at that point in time, again, in the 90s, now I know with rapid urbanization, global growth, everything is different. But at that point in time, a lot of the time families brought their loved ones who were afflicted with according to them demons or ghosts or whatnot because they were hearing voices that we would actually get calls from these places i used to work in a government hospital in india uh, as a resident and we would take referrals from them and then start patients on antipsychotics and watch them get better so it was a unique referral system nothing that i would ever see here um but that was the one of the biggest difference that uh, people were marginalized. Uh, this was basically a fringe population that really had to be locked away. You don't have to look at them. There was no concept of the fact that mental illness exists, you know, ubiquitously. I mean, we lived in a part of a world where it was just denied that the 1% um, rate of schizophrenia would never occur. So this for me was a very interesting do you, thing. Do you think that was because people had not seen successful treatments well and you so know, it's sort of self-perpetuated absolutely so a couple things i think in southeast asian populations and i think this goes to a lot of countries where there is culture as a taboo in a way that you cannot speak about your feelings you know how you're doing what is depression you know what is feeling sad and a lot of the time the complaints process through somatic 
complaints, such as people would talk about having nausea, vomiting, or uneasiness. Um, and this was repeated studies. They found that this was actually predominantly related to a psychiatric issue, a stress in their family. So this- concept, But it was an, an acceptable embodiment was, of this distress. Okay. Absolutely. You couldn't say that you were depressed. You couldn't say that you were not feeling a certain way, but you could say that you have extreme abdominal pain or you had mm -hmm. headache. You know, there are a lot of culture-bound neurotic syndromes. Um, for example, I mean, um, you know, I think there is something called koru that exists. Then there is uh, running amok in different cultures. Mm -hmm. It's given a name that is kind of like um, embedded in mysticism. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot of neuroses that is seen in somatoform disorders. So um, schizophrenia, for instance, you know, it was observed that uh, there's a certain uniformity in the way schizophrenia presents, right, globally but there are equally distinct cultural differences. But there is a reason for this. This is because it was interpreted as what was then thought to be related to the divine or related to possibly the, the devil. Um, mm -hmm. you know, there is a term called jinn in uh, certain Muslim regions. This is sort of like the influence of that. So a lot of people interpreted it that way so that that was acceptable culturally to talk about it. Uh, there's many times when people would say, oh, I'm depressed. People would say, what is that? Just spruce up, you know, just kind of buck up. That's that's unfortunately prevalent in many cultures, that, that attitude. Who, if it's all in your head, it can't be that important. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> that is, and that, one that, of the banes of my life is uh, I belong to the Royal Society of Medicine in the UK, oh, yeah. which is yeah. an international organization, really. But um, they have a section on hypnosis, which is my thing. Yeah. Uh, but it's called hypnosis and psychosomatic medicine. Yes. And everybody is insulted when you say something is psychosomatic. But yeah. we talk all the time about the mind-body connection as if these are not the same two things. <laughs> it is. And you know, I think somehow I feel like and this is this, uh, this for me was an eye-opener that even in the US, as you said, culturally, it exists everywhere. Um, mind and body are so distinct. Even at least practice medicine here today. It's almost like we get referrals from other doctors and there is a little certain amount of this is not I can something I can deal with. Mm -hmm. Okay, that this person, you know, they use the term crazy very flippantly or this person is acting crazy. I mean, and I think that it is so insulting in so many ways to the, you know, intricacies of what a human being is. I mean, how can you not expect somebody who's going through cancer to not have an emotional response to that? So why don't we treat our, you know, or why don't we teach our medical students or residents to be more empathic, to look at it as a whole connection? I almost feel like this is like, okay, this is going to be part two, because we're really want to, I don't want to talk to you about all of this, but, but I would love to know a little bit more chronologically when you came to this, you, 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 so you, you defied your family's uh, expected pathway for a start and you went into psychiatry. And you, yeah, did, re you did a residency program there? Inside? Yes, I did actually a year. And then, uh, you know, um, I got actually married and arranged marriage, but that didn't work. But then when I came here, I decided that uh, I will use this opportunity. So you, you came here because the arranged marriage. The, the, and I and again, again, I stress because I do um, interview a fair number of, of Indians. Yeah. Arranged marriage doesn't mean forced marriage. It's oh, no, just no, no, no. It wasn't forced. It was but, arranged. But... As will happen with many versions of marriage, right, right, this one right. didn't work out. But it was the reason that you came to the U.S. It had, that, was that wasn't reason. on your 
that was, that was the reason uh, the, the, I mean you know I always did think that since my interest was in psychiatry maybe my future lay abroad uh, not necessarily US I think I was looking at UK at that point in time a lot of my colleagues were going to UK but then uh, you know life happened and uh, I, I came here and then I decided to use this as an opportunity to pursue it was really difficult because to redo all the USMLE exams and to get so long after training <laughs> So long after training, I had to retrain and then uh, retrain culturally to know how to address patients who are from here and be aware about my own cultural experiences, my own cultural, you know, barriers and uh, aware of my transferences, counter transferences. So I felt like the residency in U.S. Um, was a very interesting and uh, a very growth kind of like uh, 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 the the growth that I saw personally in me was immense. I realized that uh, so many myths and so many concepts that I had about culture, about society, the way I was raised, and then I now see here and the exact opposite of it in a very good way. And mm -hmm. also the diversity that I saw here really well, led me to Of course, from here, there is no American, oh yes, there is. There is a predominant American culture, but there's all these subsets. Yes, because it's subject. such a melting pot of places. So um, where you are now practicing is Seattle area. Yeah. So right but, now, I mean, so I how many, how many, how many cultural groups do you think you can quickly figure out? How, how do you have to change your practice? Right. So, um, yeah, so it is um, interesting that so you have to change your practice based upon where your patients, you know, roots are from. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So if I have a patient who is from India, there is that familiarity there is that understanding and you know there are certain nuances that are caught on both sides but let's say I have a patient from eastern Europe and it's a little yeah. bit I have to like in, immerse myself in what that upbringing was like I met there's language barrier and sometimes there is culture barrier but ultimately you know what is really important the human experience it's the same mm -hmm. trauma is trauma illness is illness and humans are humans and that transcends all cultural barriers you may express it differently. It may be psychosomatic in the sense somatoform disorders in some cultures. It may be, you know, a, a full-blown sort of manic episode in another culture. But whatever that is, the experience of the human being remains the same. And I also feel the other thing, there is an advancement in treatment now across globally. And as I speak, I'm pretty sure my colleagues in India are pretty much practicing TMS and ketamine and, you know, doing all the novel treatments. And there's such a growth in the mindset of understanding what psychiatry has uh, is, especially due to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I think that threw the spotlight on mental health, like I had never seen before. Yeah. And well, the uptick, just in the identification yeah. of depressed adolescents. Oh, my goodness. COVID is just phenomenal. I mean, and it was it wasn't exactly a not a problem to start with but it's a really big problem now. It is a huge problem. Right now, the youth are suffering. I mean, there is immense uh, need for child psychiatrists and there's immense need for therapists, counselors, um, people who uh, we need for psychological evaluations. Uh, this this pandemic just threw, uh, you know, these kids under the bus. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there was, um, due to no fault of them, the isolation mm -hmm. that happened. And we do know right now that loneliness is one of the biggest triggers, biggest factor for suicide, for mm -hmm. increased incidences of depression, anxiety. And uh, culturally, that's also very relevant. 
because sometimes there can be stigma for people who are living here because of their families, conceptions and understanding about it. And we also see a lot of kids suffer because of the gender identity. And uh, we also see that as culturally a little bit, uh, you know, difficult to uh, like wrap your hands around because of, mm -hmm. again, where parents are from. So there's so much growth, I think, that needs to be done and so many programs that I think should be there. There should be more investment in mental health. I mean, I know that that's where the government is also going, but still I do feel that it's not enough. Mm. We and you've also got so many little charitable organizations that pop oh. up, but there's, but there's not a lot of oversight of that. So you're not sure what treatments are being offered and what therapies. And I, I think you, yeah. you nailed it. There's not a lot of oversight in the sense that I think right now people are just struggling through one day at a time. And I, mm -hmm. I say it for clinicians also, because I know a lot of clinicians who got burnt out during the pandemic. I mean, it was not possible to keep up with the trauma that they were hearing, they were absorbing. And at the same time, having to kind of like maintain their semblance of like self and right. doctors. So I think it was just a very difficult time for everybody. But we do see now that the incidence of depression, anxiety, rates of suicide, they're very high. And there is a need for crisis centers and counseling and kind of really looking at this in a very pragmatic way. Um, I do see the stigma slowly disappearing. So that is a huge change that I have seen. Yes, in, of the pandemic. I mean, even my childhood in the, in the UK in the 50s and 60s, um, people, people had breakdowns. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they so went I, to the hospital for a little while and nobody talked about it. But, but if you said you were depressed, I mean, the trouble is that, like the word crazy, depressed is a word that should be sp sp for a specific cause, but it tends to be, I'm a little bit sad all the way to, I want to throw myself off a bridge. I mean, it, exactly. it is, it's not nuanced when we speak, but, but um, in the UK, at least, mm -hmm. if you told somebody that you were told to buck up or you were given vitamin B12, <laughs> Yes. because that clearly was going to help and and it, I mean, it, sometimes it does it, yes it, it certainly can and there's because it's mind body right it is but but, yeah. but it's this not one it's not one size fits all and it's also everything is multifactorial everything everything you know and I think that it's such a I would say like a complex puzzle right there's so many factors your social factors your upbringing how your resilience is what does mental health and mental health sort of how does it influence you you know what is your understanding of that do you know how to get help do you know what kind of help you should get and but this, this is the problem because we're putting the onus on the patient right to right. figure out what kind of specialist they need that's right. that's hard for us so that yeah. is and the, and i was saying it almost in a way to kind of uh, go into my next segue is that that owner should really shift from them to us to clinicians who are going to step in and help them. And of course, primary care, uh, you know, would be the first hub because that's where. Yeah, but they are also, they are also stretched very, very thin and seven minute clinical settings are not, you know, people yeah. aren't going to tell you their deepest, darkest secrets. Of They're course. Gonna, you know, I'm going to talk to you about my stomach, <laughs> but I'm yeah. not going to talk to you about why. <laughs> that's why I think, you know, right now, I think consultation models work a lot wherein a psychiatrist might be integrated, but has sort of the oversight of, how to develop the model, how to mm -hmm. sort of put in the right resources for the right patient. So I think that if, um, 
and I, it's happening right now. There's the collaborative care models, you know, co-located clinics. So there is sort of like the consult model, but there is this, um, uh, the UW model, which was actually developed at UW University of Washington. Um, it's called uh, AIMS. And it really, the aim of AIMS is actually to make sure that there is more exposure for uh, psychiatry in primary care so mm -hmm. that patients can get the help where they need or where they come to receive it. A lot of the times, this is where they'll come and say they may have nausea or some sort of GI illness that is not going anywhere. And um, there are lots of like screening tools now that we do, which are PHQ-9, GAD-7, uh, the mood queue. A um, lot of kind of questionnaires can trigger that, okay, this might be a patient mm -hmm. who benefit from seeing a psychiatrist. But mind you, none of this is really perfect. I mean, there are no, so And you also, you're still going to run up against the patient who, you know, we're not talking about somebody who's schizophrenic. We're talking oh. about people who've got mood disorders that... Yeah that are going to be resistance when they, the first thing they, they're hearing psychiatrists, they're hearing, oh, yep. you're crazy, you're just crazy, go away. Yeah. And and that takes some finessing. You know, how, how would you, if you yeah. have a psychiatrist or a psychologist within your clinic setting, yeah, probably easier. Whereas if you say, I want you to go make a separate appointment to go to see That's this person hard. over here. Yeah, that is very hard. You know, so uh, actually, um, uh, I right now I currently work in an integrated setting. Uh, you know, at the um, uh, at a company called Crossover um, in uh, uh, in the Microsoft location, and uh, there are challenges right now in the sense of like how we should develop this program. But this is the uh, basis of it to have a psychiatrist there. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you know, I am actually soon um, in September. I'm joining a startup. Uh, it's called Options MD, and I'm really going to look into uh, people who are the exact uh, you know group that you talked about. People who really don't have resources are struggling to find help for their treatment-resistant depression. Mm -hmm. uh, really looking into ways to innovatively help them, match them with the advanced technologies that we have right now with ketamine, TMS, or also to look into ways to you know um, uh, do some research and see what kind of medications really might work best for a subset of population. So I'm excited. Um, I join as the lead psychiatrist um, in September there. We missed out a whole chunk of how you got from India to here. I mean, we know you came, you came, you know, presumably by plane. That's how most people get here these days. <laughs> Nobody gets to have the lovely scenic sea voyage where jet lag doesn't happen. I don't know. Happen. I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get into like a ship for 10 days. No, it was definitely so, but, but so you, you came here, you were... Where were you first? Where did you first? Land? I was in California. Yeah, I okay. was there, and uh, then after that, uh, you know, when um, my marriage didn't work out, then I went to India for a while, but decided to study for my uh, USMLE. So my brother at the time had migrated to Canada, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I ended up staying with him. Sometimes I had a cousin in New Jersey, so I was kind of like a couch surfing person. Yeah. Uh, but my main goal was to clear my exams, which I did. That took me about a year, but I was very lucky that I I actually got my results and I decided to call all residencies because uh, I thought, well, sometimes there is a post-match mm -hmm. And luckily- Did you go, uh, were you off cycle or do you just wait for the next? No, no, it was actually on cycle. Um, I was gonna apply for the year after. So mm -hmm. I had my applications and ERAS applications and I was looking at it. And someone told me that, 
hey, it's me and I know it's kind of late and probably I'm mm-hmm. not absolutely 100% not going to get in. But there are uh, things called, uh, you know, residency clearing houses. Mm-hmm. All residencies and see if they have an opening. There is a list that's published on the internet. And that time, I mean, it was difficult to get those lists because I'm talking about 1999. But uh, somehow I got lucky um, um, and I was able to call a program and that was in New York, my dream city. I always wanted to work there. Yeah. And, uh, I was personally thrilled to find out where you trained. <laughs> I know. We trained at the same hospital, decades same. apart, but we trained at the same hospital. <laughs> yes, St. Luke's Roosevelt. And my God, I'm so indebted to, uh, you know, the program and I had a great program director dr scott masters um and it was a it is affiliated as you you know we talked about <laughs> it the university of columbia at that point now it's affiliated to icon school of medicine so it's different now but that time i mean i love the campus uh, on uh, you know like 112th street and just walking there and having my lunch there and i think that you know in new york i got to see a cultural melting pot yes so that also shaped my training I think in a great way mm-hmm. it's really really helped how, me how important do you think it is obviously for if I was yeah. seeing a psychotherapist yeah it would be very important that that person had yeah. a similar uh, background to me I think albeit that, that they would yeah. have been born in America what yeah. what do you feel is, is important a psychiatrist yeah. doesn't feel quite the same very few psychiatrists are doing standard therapy throughout right you're right you're absolutely right and that is again uh, a lot to do with how care is being dispensed Mm -hmm. and the shortage let's be very clear there is a shortage of psychiatrists right now we are sort of like the dying breed here because a lot of us are retiring and Mm -hmm. you know there is um, I know there are residencies and everything but I think that they have projected that the shortage is going to be very acute especially in 10 to 15 years down the road so this is the reason why now we have to practice at the, I would say, at our you know top level in the sense that we have to look at patients who are coming to us for complex psychopharm management. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we cannot, uh, unless we're doing private practice, mm-hmm. uh, if we're in a community setting or even in a clinic setting, um, it, it's becoming harder and harder to have your own psychotherapy practice. Again, the world is also changing quite a lot. Um, there is not that immense interest in the in-depth psychoanalysis. I mean, I actually trained in a psychoanalytic environment. We were, uh, we had supervisors and I, again, cherish my training because I don't see that happening right now. I don't see that focus. I see a lot of it now change because of the digitalization. Um, a lot of psychiatrists are growing into becoming digital leaders and sort of like uh, incorporating technology uh, through apps and now no, let's not even talk about artificial intelligence because that's another ball game. Mm-hmm. Just see that everything- oh, if I can if I can understand somebody speaking to me in English, if I can misunderstand them, think how well a computer's going to do. Oh I, my god! When you're talking I, about nuance, you have to listen between the words, right? Yes, that's <laughs> and this is actually the chapter that I have written for AI in this book that is coming out for uh, fifteen of us, fifteen physicians from different specialties wrote mm-hmm. a chapter. It's going to come out in August, I believe. And I say exactly the same thing. What are the ethics of AI, the nuances? How is the robot going to understand exactly what you want me to interpret, right? And I I do feel that uh, we can only do so much. I think we can have some work standardized through AI where you can't really replace a physician. You can't replace a psychiatrist or that human touch, the empathy. 
I mean, if a robot develops empathy, fine. I mean, you know, I hope I live to see the day or not. I don't know yet. <laughs> I haven't made up my mind whether I want to do that. But... What about the, the proliferation of other therapy, like myself, hypnosis, which I mean, I don't do therapy therapy within hypnosis, but it is, a th it's therapeutic hypnosis. But, I, I, but what about, you know, family yeah. and family and mar marriage and family uh, counselors, addiction exactly. counselors? Yeah. Yeah. All yeah, of those I, things fit within that. Um, I, I definitely does fit into this. I mean, it may not be sort of like, again, uh, and we are schooled in a certain way, right? I mean, when we did a residency in psychiatry, um, I wouldn't sort of like be trained in hypnosis. Maybe I should have been, but this is not an area that was from a very kind of like a structured format of how we mm -hmm. got our residency training, our fellowship training. But, you know, this is the thing that I feel like, and I know there is a little bit of this... Um, dilemma that doctors are entering fields of coaching and all of that but I find that why not I mean if there are people that are struggling and if you as doctors as physicians as therapists as counselors are going to touch that aspect of human life and make it better then why not I mean I know that the, it's it's a bit controversial with the uh, some of my psych colleagues might say, oh, but we trained and everything, and I get right. that. Right. I think that the concern, usually a legitimate concern is, is somebody less qualified going to give them just enough help to yeah. not really diagnose the problem and just sort of keep a lid on it, keep a lid on it, keep a lid on it. I think that's and, the yeah. thing. That, that's the thing. And it really would depend, right? And I would say that, at least I would hope that if somebody sees people and feels like this is something that is beyond me, you know, mm -hmm. like this is something that really I would like a trained therapist who has gone through PhD or who has, you know, finished their psychiatry residency and need that kind of help. And they would probably refer to that higher level of care. But right mm -hmm. now, also, we have, you know, we we, we just have such shortage that we have a lot of like um, mm -hmm. mid-levels helping us out. You know, we unless I mean, of course, they should understand the scope of how they are practicing, because that is a complete different training than what psychiatrists do what mds do so i feel like everybody has a place in how they practice but i do feel that if we want to build like a really integrated ethical way of practicing i think we should accept what our scope is what is the limit yes. of it and we should be very clear with ourselves and sort of with the board in general right that this is what we can and this is what we cannot do this is where we need the expertise that is my thinking but again i know that there is a lot of people with different kinds of pros and cons there tends to be a bit of competitiveness <laughs> and there is a, a, a bit of like this exactly so I'm sort of I, I follow the middle ground but I do agree that scope of practice to define that is very important and then because mm. ultimately that is do no harm to the patient right so I would mm -hmm. operate that and let's say that if I was not uh, enough qualified to be a psychiatrist or whatnot I would probably understand that this is what I could help my patient with but this is somewhere I feel this patient would right. benefit the problem of course is when somebody identifies that and then they can't get the patient an appointment for x number of weeks to months I know then this it's agony why, this is the agony and this is why I'm saying that there is no real answers here and this is why we need all sorts of clinicians who are stepping up right now to help because as I said that psychiatrist in general they're being stretched thin mm -hmm. I mean it is not a field that is sustainable anymore a lot of my colleagues have retired gone into small mini cash only private practices and I think that as, uh, a, as a response to financial issues with the way that we're reimbursed or as a as a way of controlling their own 
I Turn think it's a way of controlling their own own schedule for their own happiness yeah. in life, for their own mental well-being. Uh, because as I told you in the pandemic, like there was a lot of uh, stress on the clinicians. So um, it's it's I, I do see clinicians branching out to doing other things also. Mm-hmm. So in a way to sort of still keep in connection with the field, but in a way to balance their life towards their loved ones. Um, so this is what I'm seeing uh, happen a lot. And I'm seeing a lot of clinicians also become leaders trying to have their own, as I said, digital companies or health companies or being consultants in some people are choosing different careers. So that being said, there is a void of mm-hmm. how many clinicians we have. So if people are stepping in, in whichever way, and if that's something to help people, right? I mean, right now we do live, fortunately or unfortunately, in a world of Instagram and TikToks and what have you. And I think if that platform is utilized correctly, you can use social media to mm-hmm. really influence people. To teach and, and some of the apps are very good. But yeah. I do worry that people are self-diagnosing and following those instead of seeing somebody to get an actual diagnosis or initial help. Absolutely. I think these apps, these sort of like, you know, kind of things, they help in maintenance. Mm -hmm. But initially, you need to see a professional to get a good treatment plan to understand, to have someone some oversight in what's happening. And then you may have the help of these apps or AI or these, you know, V-bots or uh, chat apps or what they have to uh, continue the maintenance. But I do feel that there is use. So that I, that's why I say that nothing is all bad or all good. I think everything has a meaning. Everything has a place in this complicated structure of what our healthcare has become. As long as we understand the scope of that particular intervention and we know how to sort of like raise the bar and say, okay, this is where I need you to go to X, right. Y, Z. And, and just because this is about immigrant doctors, and I think, because I'm an immigrant too, <laughs> but... Um, I think we just need to remember how how much value there is in bringing people in from different trainings. Do you think that your training in India and your practice in India affected the way other people in your program appreciate? Did you have did you have additional stuff you were able to bring in? You know, I think that's such a uh, interesting question. So my program was a melting pot itself. Mm-hmm. I was from India. I had another uh, resident from Nepal. One was from Yugoslavia, um, I think Romania. So people were from all walks of life. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that melting pot itself helped each of us develop as clinicians and kind yes. of each other's, I said, sounding boards. Mm-hmm. We used yeah. to have a group, you know, which was sort of like our, kind of like a group therapy where we talked about our patients, we brought like an interesting patient and we discussed the patient. And what I really learned was the unique experiences of each of my other colleagues and how they would look at the case. Mm-hmm. And that made me grow so much because my maybe my focus was sort of trained in one way as, you know, we have some sort of sometimes, sometimes a tunnel vision, but this broadened it. And so I would say that um, in India, I practice very differently. First of all, I practiced mostly in my language. Uh, because a lot of our patients were, were very poor uh, and, uh, you know, didn't speak English. And so there were different uh, ways to kind of uh, talk and mm-hmm. this. And uh, and I learned a lot in the, in the growth with that. Whereas in the U.S., um, I had to uh, sort of really, you know, change myself a bit 
to but you have so many languages available in the u.s too i do <laughs> when i when i was at st luke's yeah more than 50 percent of the time i was using spanish now that was helpful because i speak spanish yeah and many as we did many other residents there were residents from yes. puerto rico but the people who were from ghana it yeah. was harder for them because they yeah. had to, i mean by the second year they were pretty good spanish too <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly no you're right and i think we did like a course of medical spanish because new york again you know for us especially in on the harlem side we absolutely had to know right. but you've you've also got french you've got haitian french which is different oh yeah you've got yeah. romanian you've got yeah. you've got everybody yeah. from everywhere yes. and can you speak a little bit to that when you're when you are working with somebody who's not from your culture, but not even from your linguistic language. background. Oh, you can get confused between English, English and American English completely, for a while. Completely. But... <laughs> oh my God, tomato, tomato, right? But yes, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have to say that that time we really struggled because right now there are so many of these language services and, you know, it's really available, but we used to wait for interpreters. Yeah, but inter That's interpretation what... and translation are so different. And Google... Google makes some interesting yeah. misses. Have you ever read the subtitles to a language that you understand, but you yeah. watch the English and think, yes. that's not I, what they said? A hundred percent. I was just watching like a series on Netflix, which was in Punjabi, which is another format of, you know, I don't understand the language that well, but I do know enough to know the translation in English was completely off. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that does happen. And so I think that there is limitation to what happens. But, you know, even with just the spoken words, I think the cultural relevance of those words because it can be misinterpreted mm -hmm. the way you say things in certain languages can be completely misinterpreted a joke can become an insult in another language so it is it was very difficult I would say when I had patients who didn't speak the language who didn't speak English or even like my little limited miracle Spanish that I could understand but they, as you explained, you know, some people who were from Ghana or spoke a language that I was completely not familiar with. It was, it was very, very difficult. And also when they came in a psychiatric crisis. Yeah. I think as, as a doctor, I mean, I think, I mean, I might have shed a few tears in my, you know, sort of like once you finish your work and because it was, it was hard. I mean, you know, this person was in crisis and we just had to kind of do what we had to do. And uh, there was nobody who could really explain to this person. I have what was very, so this is this isn't a language problem, but and I, I may cut this out, but I had a client, mm -hmm. sorry, I, I've trained myself to say client instead of patient because now I'm just a hypnotist. But when I was still a doctor, doctoring, <laughs> uh, I was in a remote area of the country, I shan't state where, and I had somebody who was having a major psychotic break. Um, precipitated by the imminent arrival of one of her relatives for Thanksgiving. It, it just threw her out completely. And I had to wait for the crisis team. Thankfully, it was a very small ER. And I had the time just to sit and talk to her and like keep her okay. And what she was saying to me was very, very typical. A lot of sexual imagery, a lot of tinfoil stuff at the CIA of course because they were oh. they had put they had implanted her with little oh, machines yeah. and and so to was what started this I will definitely this is too mishmashy to put in but so I, I listened to this and yeah. so I kept her steady until the crisis team got there and they yeah. could admit her to a different facility and the betrayal on her face when she realized she was getting admitted and I wasn't just going to sit there and talk to her for three weeks was 
heartbreaking. This woman, you have to go to hospital, honey. You're in pain. I mean, she was so clearly in pain. I then went home. I, I used to work nights and I flipped on the TV so I could like, you know, come down. And I'm listening to PBS and it was Bill Moyers, I think. And it uh -huh. was it was all about nano machines and how you could put them into people's bodies and get feedback. I was like, oh my God, don't let them watch PBS. It was just, it was awful. You know what it is interesting and yeah i mean this is so true i mean there are there have been such stories that uh, i can say that sometimes culture right tv kind of mm -hmm. into things and the patients the way they'll absorb it and then that would feed into their own psychosis that's brewing and the way it comes out so yeah i have a lot of stories like that so we agree that immigrants are very useful to america however there used to be a concept called the brain drain Yes. Do you ever experience any feelings of distress other than the ones sent to you by your grandparents and your parents? And you come home. Um, do, do you yeah. do you ever wish that you could take what you've yes. learned here and, yes. and go back? Always. I do, actually. You know, I mean, I think you can't really get the country out of you. You've been in a country, you were raised there for 24 years. And I'm really proud of India from where I am, my heritage and everything. Um but at the same time, life does happen, uh, you know, and I did uh, create a life here. Um, for me, my brother also migrated to Canada. And mm -hmm. so for me, um, we kind of became, uh, we joke about it, you know, we were both born in India. Now he's a Canadian and I'm a US citizen, you know, so uh, life took us in those parts. Luckily, we are only four hours away, border wise. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> so we can see each other. But I feel like now 20 years here, I sort of feel that my life is become, you know, more embedded American. here. But then again, you would say, really? Because then I married a French guy. So yes, I'm married again. And I have a kid who is half French and half Indian. So that's why I, husband... I ended up I ended up staying because I married somebody from the Dominican Republic and the kids are American. And it's, you know, do I go be American and Dominican in England? No, it's just easier to stay in the third culture. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. And then I love so he, America, but I love lots of places. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's my dream. And I think it's his dream also. He's from Nice in France. Mm -hmm. So like, when I retire, that's where we'll go. Once my son is college, you know, we do what we do. And who knows where he'll go? He may go someplace he else. He may go someplace else. <laughs> but I will tell you something, talking about roots. My son is eight and he has some, uh, you know, his classmates, some of them are from India. Uh, originally, the parents are from India. And he says, well... Why haven't you taken me to India? We've been to France several times. Mm -hmm. yeah. So this year <laughs> it takes a lot longer than getting to France, but yeah. <laughs> I told you that before that. And I said, like then the pandemic happened. Okay, I didn't do anything about it. I had plans <laughs> and you were all of four or five. And now you're eight. Great. So let's go this year. So points to the stories that I am taking him. He's very excited in December to you know, see where I am from. Where did I go to school? What did I do? You know, how did I grow up in India? Because Kids have this concepts about parents. They were just like born as parents. Yes, of course. <laughs> like I did about my parents. You were just parents. You never were a child. It's like with kids when they go to kindergarten. My teacher, she lives at the school. Yeah. <laughs> and even sometimes a, a, a patient will, you know, they, yeah. they, they meet you at the supermarket and they're shocked that you shop oh. for food. <laughs> so that's a very interesting thing as a psychiatrist because you know we have such oh you're not supposed to acknowledge them yes very difficult and uh, you know it's been kind of like interesting and I also talk about it a lot with my psych colleagues sometimes I mean you know I'll just see what I know they've seen me and 
you know, if they do wave, I'll just wave back. But I do know that some patients really, uh, they do not, you know, they, they will feel very distorted inside if I mm -hmm. even acknowledge them. So you really have to be very careful with that uh, understanding of what they would feel and they wouldn't feel. But they would bring it in the session, you know, and some would apologize and say, I just didn't know how to react. And I would say, no, no worries. You know, like you react the way you felt comfortable. There is no right or wrong here. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, it's very difficult. Uh, we live in a society. We would we might see somebody. If you wanted to acknowledge, fair enough. And uh, if you wanted me to acknowledge, fair enough. But mm -hmm. it's usually just like a quick hi or a quick hello or you just move on. Because yes. those we, we definitely maintain those boundaries very, very, as we should, you know as we should now that makes it more difficult though if you're in a very small community that is true which you know has led to some some issues with you know, do you do you charge colleagues you know do you can you employ somebody you know to work on your house if you're the doctor well you know, if you need somebody to work on your house and the next person's 100 miles away yes i guess yes. you do yes that's the thing and see this is the cultural phenomenon which i would like to talk about my my father uh he, he's a general practitioner i mean he's retired or i hope he's retired because he still get calls from his patients he's 86. <laughs> yeah and you know god bless him he's really like as you said the town doctor everybody knows him everybody knows of this dr vaidya so my last name is vaidya so he's mm -hmm. dr vaidya and uh you know his patients we knew them some of them were fishmongers. My father was a very, I think he practiced community medicine really the way it should be practiced. He practiced, he he, he had his own practice, but he decided the terms of mm -hmm. it. You know, he would charge people based on how much he thought they could afford. Is there a national system or a, or a provincial not, system or state you know, system? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how it works because most of my doctor friends back home are in their own private practices. Mm -hmm. Um, there is no law in India that you cannot own hospitals or practices as there is a law in America. So it's very different. But there is insurance has started creeping in now and there are insurance health companies coming into the, you know, mm -hmm. uh, sort of like getting that uh, part of that stake in the business. But my father, at least at that point in time, and I know my friends still who are doctors there, practice independently. They are consultants to hospitals. They get their own fees. They have their own patients. They decide their own hours. So, yes, so in a way, sometimes I do look at um, their lives and think, hmm, you know, I mean, <laughs> it, it's not easy. I mean, they keep telling me it's, it's it's everything looks greener on the other side also. Of course. But I like the autonomy that they have. I like the fact that they have that ability to, you know, expand themselves the way they want to or not. There's not a national health system as such, but there are government hospitals. So mm -hmm. when I did my residency in KEM, that was a government hospital. So it was completely free. Mm -hmm. At a given time, I used to see 200 patients. I'm not kidding. Outpatient. Per shift? Per shift. 200 patients. We didn't have a lot of paper charts. Right. Okay. Let's put that EHR. There was nowhere around. We don't right. have any EMR. Okay. <laughs> we literally were doing care. It was mm -hmm. crisis care. We had patients. There was used to be a line in the OPD. I still remember. And we were seeing one after the other, one after the other, dispensing medications, you know, doing what we could. You know, sort of like we used to also have a inpatient unit. We did ECTs there. So we mm. had to sort of prep the patients for ECTs the next day. It was very, very busy. But it was there was a lot of joy because I wasn't getting unencumbered by, you know, did I take this? Did I take that? Did right. I not? Do this? Oh, my God. Like, did I not write this for the CMS measures? 
which yeah i know i know i'm not i don't want to create a controversy but i did practice in india i would say in the 1990s actually i practiced from just exactly what i was supposed to do and not be encumbered by chart work yeah that's the difference yeah that's a whole that's a whole new series to talk about that they don't have ehrs even now <laughs> my, my my friend is not ehr typing or anything she's mm-hmm. doing surgeries you know she's helping patients just she's delivering kids mm-hmm. she's doing obviously her documentation is not hope, one would hope there's a document somewhere from somebody there is a document somewhere but i i really highly doubt that she's writing down you know these click 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 and death by a thousand clicks mm-hmm. that that has to go somehow that has to be different that i feel like doctors have lost that joy of practicing mhm if i had to practice in a way that i could practice in india and just really not have to bother about the amount of work that i have to do later mm-hmm. then maybe ai can help somebody yes. can just like my notes yes maybe we'll, that we'll, maybe we'll, ai can we we'll have to figure out a way for it to be really useful may- as you know i've got a i'm going to edit everything before it goes That's out but what? so this is hopefully it'll be over but the um Sag Aftra just joined the writers strike a couple of days ago before we're talking here yes. and their primary concern is the use of AI oh taking away the jobs of writers yes. and actors because you can now through AI you know make a different person but it looks a bit like Brad Pitt but it isn't Brad Pitt you know so it when you consider that how much emotion and that mean real actors not the people who just on their own say words but real real actors I, that yeah. that is that takes up talent and a huge amount of training it really does yeah. there's a lot of practice comes of into that so the idea that i would get the same experience from watching a computer do it it just disturbs me they are getting better the, the computers are definitely better <laughs> chat but gpt is so fun cool. to talk to it answers you as if it's a person but it yeah, can also it's... say some really goofy things <laughs> but it's really i think it that, that's exactly what it is i was watching actually something you know there was a tech kind of thing going on in swanvel switzerland and there was a robot and mm-hmm. uh, a robot who's been designed that can also create human expressions mm-hmm. so one person asked this robot do you think whatever the name of the robot was that you know ai is going to take over sort of humanity and she literally gave a side eye side eye you would be a side eye and it was creepy it was creepy that she could understand that robot was like she gave a sarcastic side eye like oh like how mm-hmm. can you even ask me that question and she gave a very sarcastic answer also i'm like oh my god they are taking over the world that scared me <laughs> that creeped me out I'm like right. oh, that's why you say please and thank you to them in case it does <laughs> It has been really lovely talking oh to you, God. but we do have so to close nice. up. And I think yeah. I'm going to jo- invite you back for another season to do oh my talk about some other aspect that would yeah, be great. Let's, let's do this. So, so, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you again for the opportunity. You have a wonderful Sunday. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for joining us at Myth Magic Medicine. If you have found this episode useful, you can apply for free CME credit through the link provided in the transcript. If you're not a medical professional, please remember... While we're physicians, we're not your physicians. So please consult with your own healthcare professional if you think something you have heard might apply to you or a loved one. Until next time, bye-bye.